So let's talk about Vedana or feeling tone. Um, yeah. There's a sutta, I'll just read a short one from the Dhammapada. Talking about a practitioner when when it, it's not on the handout. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, whenever he whenever he sees with insight the rise and fall of the aggregates, he is full of joy and happiness. Joy and happiness would be feeling tone, and there's something about practice that promotes uh, pleasant feeling tone, and something about insight into the aggregates. Hopefully we will all feel joy and happiness as we look at these aggregates. So I'm going to talk about what Vedana is, what that means, both from a Buddhist and a neuro, neurophys- uh, neuroscience perspective. I'll talk about how it's not something we do, it's something that arises in response to conditions. It's so clear that that's the case. How it relates to uh, the problematic underlying tendencies, the three unskillful roots of greed, aversion, and delusion. And a little bit about how it isn't always that way. There are types of Vedana that are not associated with those tendencies, like the type that was just described in that sutta. So I think of Vedana as uh, simply pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Um, that spectrum of uh, feeling tone that has to do with, with sort of a hedonic quality. Do you like it or do you not like it? Um, and that makes us care a particular one way or another about things. Uh, it's, you know, it's a mental faculty. It's nama. It, it's... Uh, it happens in our minds clearly, but it's not cognitive the way thinking and some many perceptions are. It's this has another quality to it, and and I think and other people think that sometimes it gets neglected as something to explore and investigate in our practice. Of course, it's it's one of the domains of exploration in the Satipatthana practice. He's been one of the four establishments of mindfulness is Vedana to really explore how that arises in your experience. It's clearly important. There's a scholarly journal called Contemporary Buddhism uh, that had an article, one monthly issue devoted to Vedana a couple of years ago. And uh, it was edited by um, Martine Batchelor and John Peacock. And uh, they assembled a group of Buddhist practitioners, some scholars, some you know, um, more practitioner type, from across the spectrum of early Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Mahayana, Zen, uh, <coughs> and in the introductory, in, in introductory <coughs> excuse me, article in this issue, they said that they tried to at least start with an agreed-upon definition for Vedana, and they were unable to achieve that. <laughs> um, but they did agree that it was somewhat overlooked and was very important. It was worth paying attention to. Anyway, I felt freed by their expert opinion that I could just tell you the way I define it, <laughs> which is what I said. Uh, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Now, there is a, uh, a sutta that I won't really quote from, but basically some monks are arguing about how to define Vedana, and one of them goes to the Blessed One, to the Buddha, and says, 
well, which is it? You know, is it pleasant, unpleasant only, or is it pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral? And he's, he says, you know, there are lots of ways of teaching about Vedana, and they're all helpful in different situations, and my recommendation is not to argue about it. <laughs> so we'll keep that in the back of our minds. <clears throat> but it's, the way I like to talk about it, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, is it's identical, really, to a, a very well-established concept in scientific psychology called valence, um, which means pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's a dimension of, of the quality of experience. And in, in the very earliest years of psychology as a science, uh, this observation was made, is there's this sort of fundamental hedonic quality to experience. Uh, and uh, in the earliest textbooks of psychology, they talk about valence. And then in the mid-20th century, they began to do more sophisticated empirical studies and factor analysis. And they, there was a kind of experiment where they would, they had a list of adjectives, you know, like 200 adjectives. It's a very boring experiment. And you'd have to rate something on a spectrum. The adjectives were in pairs uh, of opposites. Like, and so they'd have the, the volunteers listen to a piece of music and then rate their experience on these 200 pairs of adjectives. Was it, um, you know, um, uh, loud or quiet? Was it uh, bright or dim? Uh, was it um, energetic or quiescent? All these adjectives that had opposites. And then they would factor analyze it. Uh, are there any what things weigh uh, load together. And they w would always find that the main factor basically boiled down to, I liked it or I didn't like it. Uh, pleasant, unpleasant. Um, and this is, you know, one of the concepts in psychology that no one really argues about, that this is the most explanatory dimension of, how, of the quality of our experience. It explains most of the, the words we use to talk about our experience mainly mean that, <laughs> with different you know, shades of meaning and variations. There are other factors that emerge from these uh, experiments, and the second strongest one is usually uh, what's sometimes called arousal. I like to call it priority or energy. So most modern psychology studies that are looking at what I would call feeling tone um, quantify at least those two dimensions, valence and arousal, or valence and priority. Um, and uh, and these, these things are fundamental to brains, actually, in a neuroscience perspective. You can see uh, that these functions are embodied in the brain and, and in the handout the very first page of the color handout. The picture in the upper right that has those colored blobs in, with a midline slice through the brain. Uh, these regions make that kind of calculation about experience, uh, valence and arousal calculations if one had to look for what words you could use to describe what are actually a bunch of slightly different functions, but they have those in common. Um, and uh, they're, in the, they're in the background of all of our experience. And as I mentioned, when I talked about the six-layered cortex, every layer of that cor of, of 
every part of our cortex gets input from these regions that are saying this is important and this isn't this is good and this is bad it, they're not sort of saying that but they're just shading your experience that way amplifying the things with strong vedana strong pleasantness or unpleasantness and then also um, making um, judgments about how important it is to devote calculation resources to something or not priority of it how arousing should how aroused should the, our circuits be by this now um it's worth mentioning that there are two kinds of synapses in the brain now a synapse is where one neuron one nerve cell communicates with the next nerve cell in the circuit linkage uh, for its function and it's a little gap between the cells and they secrete chemicals that diffuse quickly across the gap and cause an effect, ultimately it has an electrical effect on the next neuron. So an electrochemical communication across a synapse. Generally speaking, there are two kinds of synapses, uh, fast and slow. And uh, the fast ones are what we need for perception and intentional behavior and behavior in general. You need these fast synapses. But Vedana, feeling tone, and I would add to that this priority, which is a pretty big part of what the brain's wiring. I would put it in the same category as pleasant, unpleasant. It's just not about pleasant, unpleasant. It's about how how important is something. These are all slow synapses. That's the only kind of synapses that carry that sort of information. The fast synapses are capable of really encoding a lot of information, kind of in a Morse code way, you know, they're fast enough that the the sequence uh, has representational meaning. You can encode what something looks like, you know, uh, with the fast synapses. You can't do that with the slow synapses. The fast ones, I should say, are a couple of milliseconds for that electrical message to be, tri- in, you know, lit in the next nerve cell. The slow ones are more like thirty. 40 milliseconds, it's pretty fast, but not fast enough for this high-resolution information sharing. The slow synapses create a background milieu for the fast synapses. They, they're, the, they're contextual. They're, um, they're Vedana, That's <laughs> what they are. It's the flavor of the experience. It's not a thing. Uh, it's a quality. It's qualitative, not quantitative. So it's useful keeping that in mind. Um, but all of our experiences, our perceptions and our actions, are all influenced by this background Vedana. Um, one of the things that the Buddha said about it, he's such a good observer. Uh, in the, and this again, uh, oh, this is in the handout, but it's real short, so I'll read it. Uh, in Guru Nikaya, he described Vedana as an aspect of experience that all phenomena have in common. And his, his Pali, the Pali language has been translated by some translators as Vedana is the meeting place of all phenomena. Or all phenomena converge on Vedana. They really all have that background, that quality that you can see when you're investigating your experience. 
When, uh, when I first started thinking in this sort of bilingual neuroscience dormant way, I, I wondered why the Buddha didn't mention arousal or priority as part of Vedana, but I've given up worrying about that. Um, he did have the sutta, the Simsapa Sutta, where he, he, he was in a forest of Simsapa trees and he picked up a handful of leaves and he asked his disciples, which is more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in this forest? They said, the leaves in the forest, blessed one. And he said, just the same, what, I, what I'm teaching you and what I know are two different things. So he didn't say everything that he knew because he really was focusing on what we needed to know to overcome suffering. And the valence one is really where the, that's the baited hook to a greater extent than the arousal or the priority one. So uh, feelings, you know, we, we care about feelings. They're close to our heart. Um, but it's a funny thing. We can't make ourselves feel love, you know. It can happen. We can put ourselves in a situation where it's more likely to happen. But we don't order the feelings around. They, are, they arise in response to conditions. And mainly, frankly, in response to conditions that are specific to our species. So we're designed to, to like something, find some things pleasant and other things unpleasant. Um, it, it's things that are going to help with uh, survival and reproduction. So the genes live for another generation. So we find things pleasant if they involve uh, reproduction with a healthy mate, uh, consuming high-calorie f- nutritious foods, um, Nurturing our children or spoiling our grandchildren, depending on your phase of life. Um, Being in a cohesive social milieu, relationships, community. It's part of our species' requirements for survival. We find these things pleasurable. Play is pleasurable. That's how we learn to develop new skills. The right balance between uh, physical activity and rest produces pleasure, but this is essential for our health as well. So these things will will feel good um, because of our biology. Uh, And this is true of all animals, but animals, you know, depending on their species, will find different things pleasurable. Uh, Donald Hoffman, in his interesting book, gives the example of the jewel beetle, J-E-W-E-L. a beetle that lives in Western Australia, and it's uh, it's sort of it's very glossy brown, amber-colored, little dimples on the back. Good-sized beetle, um, and the male jewel beetles uh, are very interested in flying around looking for female jewel beetles that are also glossy, dimpled, and brown. <coughs> and uh, when they find them, they they feel good. They want that, and they reproduce, and that's why there's lots of jewel beetles. Well, there's a problem. There was a problem in Australia because uh, people uh, in Western Australia sometimes like to drink beer out of brown beer bottles. And there's a picture of this problem on your color handout, the second page, page two of the color handout. These beer bottles were glossy, dimpled, and brown. And the beetles, and, you know, the male beetles are thinking, the bigger the better. (laughs) These are big, and they're really glossy. 
they would prefer to land on and try to mate with the beer bottles over the females. And uh, at first it was just kind of funny, but then the beetles started to drop in numbers precipitously. Uh, One of the things that happened was there was a species of ant that adapted to the situation. These ants began to congregate around discarded beer bottles. And when beetles would land on them, they would attack the beetles and eat them. And so the male beetles were not leaving money progeny. And they had to change their laws and, and uh, they had to make the beer bottles. I don't know what change they made, but they, they made them look different. So the, the jewel beetles uh, started to come back. Uh, and the males started finding the females again. So, you know, this is an, a, a perception to the male beetle that has strong Vedana, very pleasant. And uh, it leads to a strong inclination to behave uh, in a certain way, to try to mate with the, with the bottles. Another example of the uh, ultimate irrationality of our pl- what we find pleasant and unpleasant in, this one in humans, is that <coughs> um, there's a well-known phenomenon in psychology that uh, if, if, something, if you've seen something before, you like it more. Uh, and the way this was shown uh, sort of unambiguously is they did a bunch of experiments where they showed r- kind of random shapes or letter strings that didn't spell a word or uh, fractal shapes that didn't have any real meaning. They were just interesting, unique shapes. Or they, sh- they took uh, fake Chinese characters, Chinese characters that didn't say anything, just in case somebody could read them. They were nonsense characters. And flash them up on the screen, a whole set of one of these types of things, and have people rate them in terms of how pleasant they found them on a zero to ten scale. And, you know, most people would find them kind of neutral, kind of in the middle, not pleasant, not unpleasant. But if they subliminally showed them some, a subset of, say, half of them were flashed up subliminally, they weren't consciously aware, consciously aware they were seeing them, but their visual system had encoded them. They just didn't make it all the way to past the filter of consciousness. Um, then they liked them more. They'd already been, ex- been handled once, or it really was more like ten times, that they were repeatedly shown the valence, the Vedana associated with that experience would start to go up. And then they would say, yeah, I really like that one. I, I don't know why I like that one. That's a nice-looking fractal shape. You, you have to realize that advertisers are very aware of this research. They, they want you to see their logo so that it's just so familiar that it's positive to you. So Vedana arises from conditions, uh, and some of them, it's hard to figure why we're designed that way. Uh, maybe there's some danger in new things, and if you've handled something ten times before, it's probably safe. Who knows? We can also learn from experience uh, and something that was neutral can become pleasant or unpleasant. I've given the example of fear conditioning where a green circle will become unpleasant to an animal if you shock it every time. Three or four seconds after you flash the circle up on a screen, you shock it. It will find this, this green circle unpleasant. This happens in people too. Um, And in people, uh, I mean, yes, we can learn to apply Vedana to things because of our our culture or our experience in life, of course. 
But it's a lot easier uh, to learn to like or dislike some things than other things. So um, when they tried to condition college students to uh, an electric shock and they used a picture of a flower, it took a lot longer. And uh, the flower never had quite the impact of the green circle, you know, because it was something that was sort of inherently pleasant. On the other hand, if they put a picture of a spider up on the screen, tried to condition them to the shock, it was very rapid. They immediately acquired that, that conditioning. Oh, yeah, spiders, ugh, dangerous. So, yeah, we learn, but we're, we're still biased by our built-in tendencies. There are implicit biases uh, in what we are capable of learning, and, th- and this is a problem, especially because of in-tribe, out-tribe biases. Uh, and there's this innate tendency uh, to think of someone who's from our in-group to be positive, and someone from our out-group to be negative. It takes more learning to overcome those implicit tendencies. Um, so Vedana or hedonic tone, especially when it's particularly strong or intense, is strongly linked to some underlying habitual tendencies. And actually, when I say habitual tendency, I don't mean a learned habit. I mean instinctive, built-in, whether it's or learned, either one, something that's become automatic. There's a sutta on the text handout, and I will ask if someone will read that one. <coughs> it's, uh, uh, oh gosh, on the second page, <coughs> it starts, what underlying tendencies? We have a volunteer. What underlying tendencies underlie each of the three feelings? The underlying tendency for greed underlies pleasant feeling. The underlying tendency for aversion underlies painful feeling. The underlying tendency for ignorance underlies neutral feeling. Do these underlying tendencies always underlie these feelings? No, they do not. Thank you. Yeah, so it's it's sort of obvious that greed would be triggered by liking and aversion by not liking and ignoring something, being ignorant or just deluded about it when it's sort of neutral. Um, But, you know... uh, (coughs) The Buddha made it clear that there was a difference between Vedana, which he labeled as a, one of those elements of our experience, and the underlying tendency to crave or to aversion, etc. He, he talked about those separately, and, and that, is, that is a distinction that, that neuroscientists uh, endorse. But really only recently, um, it, it took a long time before um, psychologists and neuroscientists sort of came to this exp- uh, this insight that the two are not the same. They're so close. You know, it's in our, in one's experience, in my experience, you feel liking, you feel wanting. It's like right next door. They're, they're very close neighbors. Uh, the Buddha cl- made it clear that there was a difference between the underlying tendency, which is a sankara, it's an intention. I want to get it from the Vedana, which is just the experience of the pleasantness. Liking versus wanting. In in neuroscience, uh, in the 1950s, some researchers were studying what would happen if the brain were exposed to electrical stimulation. So they put electrodes into the brains of rats and turned on a low current. 
And they found, to their surprise, that there were some areas which if they turned on the current, the rat seemed to like it. And so they set up an experiment where the rat could push a little lever that would electrify the electrode. And there were some places in the brain where if they gave the rat that opportunity, they would just push the lever nonstop. They would just keep pushing it. In fact, they, they had to disconnect it so the rats would eat because they liked the lever, the electrical stimulation of that part of the brain so much. They wanted to do that more than to eat. And so th there, were just a, there were some areas that had this uh, capacity in our neurology. And these were called pleasure centers. Big articles in po popular science magazines. And it was a remarkable thing, you know, and had some meaning for understanding things like addiction, etc. That we're, we're sort of wired, want certain things. But it really took 40 years of careful study before uh, uh, some researchers figured out that actually most of these brain regions are not producing pleasure. And they're not pleasure centers. They're wanting centers. Uh, and only a few of them are pure pleasure centers. And the wanting, um, pleasure is is associated, but it's not intrinsic to what that part of the brain is doing. There's a picture on the handout right next to the jewel beetle that shows a rat brain in cross-section. And the green areas, if you'll stimulate them electrically, the rat will, will want to stimulate more. And the red areas, the rat likes it. It's pleasant. But it's different. It's different neurochemically. It's different anatomically. There's a very strong link between them. You know, essentially, if you like it, you want it. But there is a step that's taken to get from one to the next. A step that, that the Buddha saw clearly, but it took a long time for a scientist to dissect them apart. The, the true pleasure centers, liking, uh, use endogenous opioids as their neurotransmitter chemical to communicate that information and the endogenous cannabinoids. The wanting circuits use dopamine to communicate with each other. Dopamine, opiates, cannabinoids. This makes a pretty good list of drugs of abuse or drugs that people can get hung up on and not want to stop uh, stimulating that part of their brain. Um, there are a few exceptions, actually. Uh, I mean, even nicotine, which is very habit-forming, is habit-forming through a dopaminergic connection. Um, but it, it really is, is impressive to me that the Buddha saw this distinction clearly, and it's a critical distinction for our practice. Liking and disliking, that's part of life. Craving and aversion, craving and hatred, aversion, that's secondary. That can be governed. Those circuits are under, and these pleasure and wanting regions in the rat and in the human are not in the cortex. They're subcortical. Um, but they are wired into the cortex, and, but they're also governed by the cortex. And it is possible to not want everything you like. Uh, and that's what the Buddhist teaching is telling us to notice how that works. That, you know, there's a little gap and you can expand it. Um, 
And uh, the, the way that, uh, that wanting works, which is the one that gives us a problem, that the liking itself is no problem, um, is that um, liking teaches wanting. This is how, how neuropsychologists think about it. Liking teaches wanting. Uh, and I, I put a, a little diagram on the second handout, lower left, here, that has three red tracings. And those tracings, the, the height of the red line is a reflection of uh, how much neural activity is happening in dopaminergic cells in one of these wanting centers. Uh, and normally it's just at a baseline level. And then if a rat gets something that it likes, the liking centers alert the wanting center and the wanting center fires off some dopamine, or dopaminergic neural activity. And that uh, means that, that those circuits will activate other parts of our perceptual circuits and our intentional circuits to figure out how it is that we got something we like so much so that we can make it happen again. Right? This is what we do. And so if you give it an answer to that question, like you give a rat something pleasurable, a grape, you know, or something it really likes, some high-calorie food, um, but you do it, first you flash a, a green circle on the, onto the wall of its cage or something, you turn a light on in its cage or something, green light, uh, four or five seconds before you give it a tasty food, it will figure that out. These wanting circuits, which have been alerted by the liking circuits to find out what, how, where did that come from? Can I get more of those? It will make the association, green light, gr- food. And now when the green light comes on, that's the second tracing, uh, the dopaminergic cells say, oh, oh boy, uh, there's a high likelihood that I'm going to get something I like, so now I want it. The, the likelihood is there. Let's go and get it. Let's get the intention circuits to get ready to eat a grape. And it's also, it's still wondering how to better predict this. What made the green light come on? Was there anything else going on? The wanting circuits are trying to learn how to get these rewards. And then if you, later on, after you've rewarded the rat multiple times, you turn on the green light and you don't give it a grape. The green light, yeah, oh boy, eager anticipation a type of pleasure in a way, a wanting, an itch that needs to be scratched, Um, but no grape. And when it notices that's really not coming, then you get a drop in dopamine, which says, oh, something bad happened. I need to look around. I must have missed something. I got to learn what really predicts reward and what predicts lack of reward. So, um, So this really has helped people understand addiction. Um... One of the most important uh, strategies in helping people overcome addiction is to be very careful about cues, uh, things that you associate with using the drug. And so if you always scored your drug at a certain part of town, do not go there. Don't go to those streets or with certain other people. You're just going to have to get new friends because they will be cues and that will ignite activity in these wanting circuits and you're going to be kind of powerless to stop the, the, the train once, it, once the cue triggers it. So con- cue control is really important. 
smokers too. Uh, figure out what the cues are and try to keep them out of your environment because they activate these circuits. And, uh, and the wanting kind of gets a life of its own. Um, people who are addicted especially to amphetamine, which is pure dopamine, pure wanting, you know, it is, pleasure, it is pleasurable, but uh, many, this, this is not, was not my area of clinical practice, but I've read and heard that for many people addicted to drugs like this, the pleasure kind of goes away after a while, but the wanting doesn't. They just, what happens when they use is the, they get the good feeling of the wanting quieting down for a while, which feels kind of good because it's, you know, it's just itch that needs to be scratched. But the pleasure is really not worth it. It's just that the wanting has a life of its own. So this has uh, been hijacked. Yes. Is it known why some people, some people's brains are more susceptible uh, to uh, addiction than others? It's known that some people's brains are more susceptible to addiction than others. There's some conditions that have been identified. I mean, it's genetic. Um, it, it partly has to do with... Uh, most drugs of abuse have some unpleasant effects as well. Alcohol, you know, it's kind of... Like, um, and... Uh, People who have fewer unpleasant effects to a drug are more likely to become addicted to that drug. So people who have very... Alcohol doesn't make... Even lots of alcohol doesn't make them sick. They're at higher risk of alcohol abuse. Uh, Alcohol, which does not act directly on dopamine, uh, has an indirect effect on dopamine. And that circuitry is stronger for some people than others. So people who have a strong dopaminergic reaction to alcohol are much more likely to become addicted to it. Uh, there are factors that have been identified, um, and, but I don't know if there's any one answer. It's probably overdetermined. Yeah. I, I have a comment. In the last year, I read a book on, the last two years, on um, the problem with um, inter, uh, Internet and uh, uh-huh. games and... Uh, iPhones and stuff. And I was saying that in the Vietnam War when they had a lot of soldiers becoming heroin addicts, that 95% of them when they came back to the United States, they weren't drug addicts because the whole environment was different. Right. And they said that's why being addicted to like your cell phone is so hard because it's always there. Yeah. Yes, the cue is always the there. Is there. The cue is always there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, back in the days when I used to do drugs, um, I, I remember noticing a sensation with drugs like um, cocaine and MDMA, where it's not like what was happening would be fun or pleasurable, but I, there would be a sensation of something fun is about to happen. Does that fit into your model? Yeah, that's the pleasurable anticipation, you know, uh, which is more, which leads to the wanting, you know, it's yeah. anticipation, something to get. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And, and would you def- define the difference between wanting and liking as that gap between um, kind of 
the present moment and expectation. Yes, that leaning forward, that's yeah. the wanting. Right. That's, that's where we get into trouble. Got it. Thank you. So these are examples. I mean, as I also say many times, Vedana, Sankara, Sanya, they all work together. This is Vedana influencing Sankara just very powerfully. We like it. We want it. We lean forward. Um, but Vedana also influences perception, not just you know behavior. Um, and uh, I'll give you some examples. They're sort of obvious, but I mean... It, when you want something, when it's dominating your mind, it really narrows what you see. Uh, you just see what you want, um, uh, what you're craving. Uh, the, the old metaphor about uh, when a pickpocket meets a saint, all he sees are his pockets. You, know, you, you miss what's going on, you know. Um, and it's not just limiting the way Vedana affects sanya, it also is making a caricature of things, exaggerating features. Um, a gambling addicts, they picture being at the gaming table and they exaggerate the likelihood of winning. <laughs> um, that's part of the syndrome. There is a distortion of that model that strengthens the draw that, that's consistent with the wanting uh, shaped by the wanting um, this happens in, in a lot of situations the, an infatuated lover he, he pictures his beloved in exaggerated terms you know we we make more of it than it really is I, I uh, hard for me to go into a restaurant and order calamari without thinking it'll be just as good as that calamari I had in this little town off the, near the Adriatic coast in southern Italy 25 years ago, but it's never as good. You know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the Tibetans have a name for this that I love, which is called uh, the mind is putting feathers on it. We have an experience, and we blow up the, the 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 pleasure part of it, and that that really hooks the wanting, or it's a hook for the wanting. So this is one of the things that if you can see your mind doing this, you can have a little more space between liking and wanting. Um, I have a little handout. Uh, I mean, a picture on the black and white handout. Uh, of an ice cream cone. I don't know how useful this is, but I, I like it. Of, of the mind, of noticing that you're putting the feathers on the thing. Um, so, you know, you see an ice cream cone and you think, mmm, the ice cream cone is delicious. The satisfaction is in the ice cream cone. But really, it's very conditional. You know, if you've already had a lot of ice cream, it's not that sad. You're sort of ugh, cloying. It's a little too much. In every case, it's the mind, it's the conditions in the mind that are putting the, the, the hedonic tone onto the experience. Sugar is not sweet. It's not a chemical property. It's, a bio, it's an, orgas an organism's response to it. It's the function of the taste receptors. The sweetness happens in our nervous system. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's 
true and it's sort of obvious but it's important to be aware of that the hedonic tone that we put on things is is in our minds it's not in the things and it's another way to expand the the gap a little bit between uh, liking and then wanting remember that the liking it's conditional it's in your mind it's not this thing that's always going to be in every ice cream cone um, every calamari order <coughs> um, Shyla Catherine gave an exercise um, that I liked at a retreat recently where she said uh, at some time to be mindful of the pleasure of eating the pleasures of eating or the Vedana of eating select a food that you like and a food that you don't like and a food that you feel neutral about and, and arrange them kind of in a ceremonial way make a little plate with, a little, with one bite or a couple of bites of each one of those categories of things and then meditate a little bit and then sit down and mindfully eat each one and when I tried that, it was like, man, those categories don't capture it. You know, I, I, I thought I liked this, but you know, today it was like, eh. and the one that I don't like, you know, well, you know, it's okay. Uh, it, it, they're really categorical. When you're really with the experience, um, you can see more of texture, more of the messy variability and uniqueness of life. It's not, I want this thing, as if it's a thing. It's not. There's no reified satisfaction in anything it's uh, it's interactive it's conditional so uh, I mean her example Shaila's Catherine's example is an example of how mindfulness uh, is a helpful way to break the link between liking and wanting between Vedana and the underlying tendencies that cause us grief uh, and it's and it's essential part of the Satipatthana practice. Well, yeah. So you you had mentioned uh, not finding uh, the Buddha addressing priority. Yes. Uh, but I was wondering. Uh, it seems like a lot of the uh, in, uh, purpose of, of vipassana is managing priority. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, you're right. Priority shows up in the teachings. I just was surprised he didn't say Vedana is both valence and priority, like a modern psychologist would, but I, I've gotten over it. Um, as long as we're on Vedana, uh, every once in a while I hear a teacher talking about worldly and unworldly Vedana. And I was wondering, I've always wondered whether, maybe neuroscientifically, whether there's some different response in the brain to worldly, which I guess is sort of due to the five senses, and unworldly, which is... I, I can't really say what it is, but maybe you would know. Oh, thank you for that question. It's a perfect segue. Um, yeah, I've been very interested in unworldly Vedana, and I, I would would say that um, it, it is defined as the five senses for worldly and the mind gate for 
unworldly in some places, but in other places it's more has to do with whether, and I, I think the more important distinction for practice is whether it leads to the habitual underlying tendencies or not. And examples of unworldly Vedana would be um, the pleasures of practice. You know, uh, when you sit mindfully, sometimes you feel good. Uh, Analio says, uh, if you really pay attention to the body in mindfulness practice, the background Vedana of most bodies, now he's middle-aged, is unpleasant. (laughs) There's this low-level, you know, uh, in the body. But it, when you turn your attention to the mental factors, the background quality of a, of a mind is a slow level pleasantness. Um, and, uh, and then other things about practice. Concentration can be very pleasurable. Mindfulness is pleasurable. See, insight is joyful. Uh, the Brahma Viharas feel good, you know, compassion. It's, this is unworldly Vedana kindness, uh, generosity. Um, But I do think that the key thing is not whether it's um, generosity that's producing the Vedana, it's it's the intention. You're being generous because you want to help someone. There's no underlying tendency for wanting. If you're being generous because you've discovered that it feels good, um, there's some wanting. There, There could be a risk. Same with with our practice, if we're practicing just to feel good, we could end up wanting that. But if we're practicing uh, for a transformation of the intentions that arise in our heart, then there's no wanting there. It's, uh, uh, there's a preference for the practice, but not that hook. It's not a baited hook of wanting. Neuroscientists wonder the same question. You know, They don't really talk about the Dharma, but they say, the pleasure of listening to a symphony, is that the same old pleasure center that amphetamines activate or wanting center? And uh, actually, they don't know the answer to that. You know, there was a, one of the leaders in this field spoke at Davis a, a couple of years ago, and he said, yeah, that's an active area. Are these more subtle pleasures of civilized life? Are, is it the same circuits or are there other circuits? I think it's really the higher circuits interacting with these lower circuits in a different way. But that's just a intuition. But uh, Joseph Goldstein emphasizes the importance of unworldly Vedana. Uh, he says uh, it's essential for our practice. And, and he, uh, he quoted a sutta recently when I was listening to a talk of his that said, gladdening the mind when it should be gladdened is essential. Without it, realization is impossible. It's part of the hack, the workaround, I think, of the Dharma practice is to, to leverage the fact that we can feel pleasure in a healthy way, in a way that isn't associated with wanting and craving or feel, un- feel displeasure in a healthy way without hatred and aversion. And we learn from something because it felt bad to do it. I'll just read one other quote from the Dhammapada. If by giving up a lesser happiness, one could experience a greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. I think I'll stop there and uh, see if you have some questions. We've answered some questions already, but are there others on this topic?
If not, if you can manage to talk about intention before break, can we do that? Great. Right. So as I've said, from a biological point of view, intentions are what evolution is really about. Behavior, that's, at least for nervous systems, that's what they do. Uh, it's the key thing. And I think it's important in the, in the Dharma as well. Um, craving, uh, hatred, these are intentions. Um, they're sankaras. Uh, what causes our suffering in the way I think the Buddha meant us to understand dukkha is not what happens to us, but how we respond to it. The responses are sankaras, their intentions, their action dispositions. And uh, what distinguishes an arahant to someone who's freed from the, the three unskillful roots is how, how he or she responds to the events of life. Um, so I like to use the word intention for this, even though it's kind of misleading because some, sometimes the word intention means, uh, well, you know, oh man, I, I intended to show up on time, you know, or it's, it's sort of like part of a rationalization or like the, the road to uh, hell is paved with good intentions, um, I don't mean that, I don't mean rationalizations or things we tell ourselves that we're doing. What I mean is, the true intentions that are lit in our nervous system as we do something. The model we have of what we're doing. Intention, like perception, is model-based. You know, we behave by creating a model of what we want to see change in the, with our limbs or our speech. And then we implement that model and we check to see if we did it right. And uh, that's how I mean, the, our true intentions. Uh, the things that give rise to our actions. Now it also will include more subtle things like our aspirations, our true aspirations, goals that we, that we really hold in our heart. They may not be affecting in detail what we're doing right now, but they're shaping the choices we make. Like Sanya, Sankara is a very broad heap. There's a lot of things that fit into the heap of Sanya. Zatsankara, uh, and including these different levels of intentionality, of planning, of, pr- of what we do, uh, what kinds of things we're likely to do in the future, all fit into these, these patterns, these fabrications that affect our behavior. So uh, the main points I want to make about intention... Uh, is well for one is that we uh, we have the sense that we're doing things uh, and I would I'll try to make the point that we tend to overestimate the role of conscious deliberate choice in most of our behaviors I'll also try to make the point that uh, we rarely have a single intention intentions are uh, um, a mosaic there's a competition among intentions. We express few, but many, many arise and sort of compete, and some of them turn into actions. I'll try to make the point that a huge determinant of our action choices are 
It's just basically what we've done before. This is a big way that karma influences our life in real time. Also, situational context is a big determinant of the intentions that arise in us. And finally, I'll, I'll make the point that it's possible to be mindful of intentions uh, and that the brain has a couple of built-in circuits that really are for that. And I'll describe them to you. <clears throat> so, uh, the role of conscious deliberation in, in action was a scientist named Benjamin Libet at UC San Francisco in the 1980s published some studies that got people all excited because, uh, well, basically he, uh, I'll tell you what he asked people to do. He asked people to, um, well, to rest their hand on the table. You can't do that, but you can rest your hand on your lap or something or some place where it can rest. And then I'm going to want you to raise your, your dominant index finger just a little bit off of the resting point position of your hand. But I'd like you to let the timing of that movement be random. Let, let the movement happen two or three times in the next 30 or 40 seconds. But just um, don't push it. Let it happen kind of at a random time. So that's the experiment, experiment that he did. But he had people hooked up in a lab with a high-density EEG array, so he could read their brain waves and evoked electrical potentials. And he had them looking at a fancy clock thing that spun around at a speed where uh, they could use it as a timer. He was going to ask them to note when the intention to move the finger became conscious. And they could tell when, to within about 10 milliseconds accuracy with this fancy clock thing he had. Just like where this sweep dot was located on the dial. Very precise. And he proved the precision of this. And so the, the results of his experiment are illustrated on the third page of the color handout in the upper left. So the, the brain waves, well, okay, the, the, red, the red circle and the red arrow is when the, t- the timing of when the volunteers became aware of the co- consciously that they were going to move their finger. Uh, and that was uh, two, minus 200 milliseconds from the movement of the finger. Now, they had little electrodes on the hand. They knew exactly when the finger moved. So that was minus 200 milliseconds. They became aware of the movement before that, before the movement occurred. However, the brain waves uh, detected something called the readiness potential in the motor system in the frontal cortex, that's a reliable indicator of any movement. If you know the timing of the movement, which they know, you can go back and look and you can see about 500 milliseconds before the movement, there's this little electrical activity in the motor region of the brain that's preparing the movement. So the results of Libet's studies was that the brain prepares the movement 300 milliseconds before the conscious part of your brain gets the memo that the movement is going to be executed now, right? So this, this created a problem for philosophers um, who, who wanted to think about free will being uh, something that a, the conscious part of your brain does, that it, it, it rules your behaviors. Now, of course, it ha- conscious reflection has an important role in behavior, 
but most of our behaviors are prepared outside of consciousness. Um, and, and maybe multiple ones are prepared. But, and, but the ones we express, they, they have a history that we're not aware of the beginnings of, unless we're really uh, very mindful. Now another aspect to Libet's experiment was he added, uh, after he found this, scratching his head and wondering about free will, he added a little red light to the apparatus that if it flashed on, it was, a st- it was uh, intended to be a stoplight. If you saw the red light, then no matter what your plans were, don't move your finger. Okay, put the brakes on. So that worked very well. They could, that light could be just maybe 30, 35, 40 milliseconds before the movement. It would still, you could still apply the brakes. So the conscious part of the mind was already engaged. It knew you were going to move. And it could stop the movement before the movement was emitted into the world. So uh, some people who read the scientific literature like to say it raises, que- raises problems for free will, which is a complicated question anyway and relies on some assumptions that are troublesome. But it's clear that we have free won't. If we're mindful... We can stop ourselves from doing things once we notice what the heck it is we're about to do. So it's not that our conscious processing modules aren't important for our behavior. It's just important to recognize that non-conscious things are uh, behind most of our behaviors. And, And preparing them and starting them on their launch path, we do have this ability to stop them. Very important for our Dharma practice. Um, There is a a competition among intention-generating circuits in the brain. Um, You know, I, I talked about cortical columns. There are millions of them across the cortex. Uh, every one of them has an output module, layer five, that's, that's connected to muscles. Uh, and these modules, I mean, they're, they're at rest a lot of time, but they're not completely at electrical rest. There's readiness to respond. Uh, we're a mosaic of possible actions that are being readied, some closer to execution than others. Um, I mentioned how Vertebrates like ourselves, and especially mammals, have these three different brains, each of which can perceive, make value judgments, and respond. And so responses are being prepared at primitive levels and at sophisticated levels. There's really a lot of competition uh, between them. Um, um, One of the ways that this has been studied at least in the forebrain, competition among different intentions. Uh, I also put a little picture of, and it's the one with the broccoli and the candy bar. This was uh, some studies that were done of dieters who formulated an intention to go on a diet for their health. So that's on the upper right of the third page. And um, (coughs) this only looked at cortical modules generating intentions. Um, but they, they found a couple of things. So they put people in an MRI scanner and they looked at patterns of brain activation while they looked at pictures of foods. Uh, 
across many categories, some of which were uh, tasty but not healthy, others were healthy but not considered that tasty, some were both healthy and tasty, some were neither, and they asked people to rank them. The first scan was rank all the foods on how yummy they are to you, how tasty they are for you. Um, and all the, the foods that were, the foods were rated as very tasty, all activated the, little, the red region on the lower brain, which is the orbital cortex. That um, is a midline sliced through the brain. The midline of the brain is a little more primitive than the lateral parts. Uh, and this is where kind of visceral value judgments about foods and other aesthetic preferences are made. So any, any food that was considered tasty activated this more, for a cortical region, fairly primitive, eye-like region. Um, and then they had people uh, rate foods, make sure I get this right, yeah, as healthy. Uh, and they looked to see what regions were activated by the judgment of healthiness. But before I tell you those results, I'll tell you the third thing they did, the third scan. Then they presented pairs of foods, two foods to a person repeatedly, two, two different pairs. Uh, and they knew, they programmed this based on the person's preferences and their views of what's healthy, so that they're always competing a tasty versus a healthy one. Uh, with varying degrees of difficulty, like super tasty but not healthy, or just kind of tasty and not healthy. They just get a range of how they would respond. And they, they told people that when the experiment was over, uh, they would be given one of the foods they had chosen. So there was some real consequence. They would be allowed to eat one of the things they had said, I prefer the one on the right over the one on the left. And they, they did this like 40 times, but they would get one of them to actually eat. Anyway, they found that... Um, after they did this study, I'm like, I forget how many people, that they fell into two groups. Almost half of them chose the healthy food consistently over the tasty food. And pretty much about the other half consistently chose the tasty food over the healthy food. The, the, the sample of, of people who were about to begin a diet uh, fell into sort of two halves. And uh, then they looked at how, they, how the healthy foods activated the brains and it activated them differently in the people who later turned out to be the ones who were going to choose the healthy food. So the people who later chose the healthy food, the healthy food activated two regions. Uh, this upper region, which is on the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, considered to be the highest sort of executive level of the human brain uh, for decision-making, intention at the highest level. You know, intention that takes advantage of all of your information at a fairly abstract level always participates in consciousness. Um, that was activated by the healthy food and the more pleasure-sensitive region in the orbital cortex also was activated by the healthy foods. And that it, the association between the two made it look like the cognitive region, the dorsolateral prefrontal region, was facilitating the activation of the orbital region, was making it vivid that I really do want this. I really do like this. And the people who later chose the tasty food over the healthy food, that pattern wasn't happening in their brain when they looked at the two foods. So I guess the point of this is... Uh, that we have multiple intentions and they compete and something wins uh, the competition. Uh, and uh, 
having a well-developed sort of cognitive appreciation for why to want something that might not be instinctive, might want something that might be going against the stream a little bit, that helps. Really want the healthy thing. Um, but I think also what helps is to be able to feel it at a visceral level. The successful food choosers were able to light up that more uh, just basic I like it feeling part of the brain. Uh, and I think imagery goes a long way to that. When, when you have a, a, a goal representation, I want to try to do something, I think it's a predictor of success when you can translate that into something sort of vivid and f- at a feeling level. Yeah. So another th- thing is... Uh, oh, yeah. Um, Right. What kinds of intentions can compete to be expressed in our behavior? Well, it's pretty much everyone has a repertoire of things they can do. I mean, this is the problem with an unbridled view of free will. There's a lot of things we just can't do. I can't fly. It's not in my repertoire. Uh, it's a clear, obvious example. But there are also some things that I'm not very good at doing that a lot of human beings can do. And so if I don't have skill, uh, like at golf, uh, I'm not going to, you know, I might want to hit the ball down the center of the fairway, but I'm not going to. Uh, it's not in my repertoire to do that. Um, I can hit it forward, <laughs> but not straight. Um, so practice enlarges our repertoire. And something that you're skilled at is more likely to outcompete things that, uh, than you're not skilled at. So practicing um, things that you would like to have show up in your life as a real intention increases the likelihood that they will show up in your life as a real intention. I mean, it's obvious with athletic abilities. You know, you, you, you spend a lot of time on the tennis court learning to hit your backhand, and then, and then it just arises, you know, naturally once you've really mastered it. It's a time-consuming process, but it shifts the balance between... uh, It can shift the balance away from the instinctive things. If you're trying to supplant or out-compete an instinctive tendency with a higher... uh, a a, a tendency that's motivated by higher values, practice (laughs) that will help in the competition. The other thing is context. Um, well, actually, before I go into context, I mean, this is one of the most important meanings of karma. And this question came up earlier. Um, be careful which dog you feed, you know. Uh, if you repeatedly do the things that are instinctive but unhealthy, they're going to be a really strong competitor next time. Um, that's, that's our karma. It's not like some justice thing. It's that the, the plasticity of our brain is such that the circuits that support certain actions will grow stronger the more we carry out those actions, the more we foster those intentions. We don't free want them. You know, we don't hold them back. If we let them go to completion, they get written in our nervous system. 
And so feed the dog you want to have in your life. Um, contextual control is really important. Uh, so, so people who study behavior in the frontal lobes sometimes group it, uh, intentions into three categories of abstractness versus concreteness. Um, the most concrete is the, is the motor homunculus, this strip along the motor cortex, uh, the, the central sulcus, that has a, a map of our, of our body and the, the hand part moves the hand and the foot part moves the foot. Uh, it's, it's a mapping, it's an impl- implementation of specific movements that's specific to our, our body. That's very concrete. And <clears throat> then there's the highest level, which is our plans and our, our sort of goal representations. You know, I, I want to I go to medical school, so I'm going to have to take organic chemistry. <laughs> I'm going to have to do these things. I'm going to have to go to summer school this year or whatever. You have these plans, and they sort of guide your choices, and they sort of have an influence on whether you go out on Friday night or not, you know. And, uh, they're in the background, and, and those things don't really have a localization that's quite clear. You know, they're, they're spread out, they're distributed across the, control, the intentional part of the brain. But then there's an in-between ray, uh, level that's localized to this thing called the premotor cortex, and it's right in front of that motor homunculus, that, that takes your goals, and before it implements particular behaviors, it looks at the situation you're in and adapts them and creates strategies uh, to do something. So the real concrete example of this is if, if that part is put to sleep or, you know, uh, drugs so that's not working in a monkey, and a monkey that's learned uh, some simple task, uh, reaching to get food uh, in a cage, uh, well, if, you, if that part's not working, uh, or reaching to get a token that they can trade for food, so they're using their high-level goals, they know the token is worth food. Uh, but you put a plastic screen transparent plastic screen in front of them. Now a normal monkey with, with the premotor part working, the contextual strategizing part, will reach around the screen. But the monkey where that part's been put to sleep will just repeatedly crash his hand into the screen. He just has a goal and he has an overlearned thing of reach for what you want. He can't contextualize it. Uh, like, oh, <laughs> there's a plastic screen there so I should use a different movement. Um, that's a very concrete example of the importance of this part of the brain that looks at the situation, looks at what your goals are, looks at what your, what's in your repertoire. I have reaching movements available to me. And then plans one that might work. Or, you know, and also plans the timing of things. Um, but I think we are very sensitive to, our, to context. Um, we know, like if we have a goal to talk to our friend about... Uh, party that we're planning uh, but we're in a social gathering where there's a couple of people who we're not really planning on inviting to the party you know not to talk about it then that's contextual you know so you, you go okay well I'll, I'll change the timing of this conversation um, I think you I think we can use this function of our intentional system to uh, control the behaviors that we that we carry out. So, like, there are certain things you wouldn't say at a funeral that you would say at a at a bar. Um, and so, 
if you're, so if you're noticing this competition in yourself, you can use imagery to kind of amplify some aspects of the context you're in to make some behaviors more likely or less likely. Um, I recently uh, went through some medical adventures. I had to have surgery, and I wasn't really sure how that was going to turn out. And uh, it was, you know, it wasn't a big deal, but it was enough that it got me thinking about some unfinished business in my life, you know, some relationships that were not in a good place. And that context made me take care of those relationships. I'd been sort of putting it off, you know, and like it's just unpleasant. <laughs> but it's like, well, whoa, you know, you don't have forever. Let's, what would you feel bad about if you hadn't finished? So I, that context motivated me. Um, there's this concept of uh, samvega in Buddhism, spiritual urgency, to feel the urgency of the work on the path. The Buddha often used the, the, the visual image of practice like your hair's on fire. And if your hair's on fire, you're going you're gonna to stop what you're doing and put out the fire. So samvega is like putting the context, making it clear how important it is to work on these path issues, the, to, do, to practice the Eightfold Path now. These are just ways you can use your ability to visualize things, to change what intentions win uh, when, when you notice the competition. Um, and mindfulness is very important because if you see the intentions arising, you have the chance to veto them. And if you can even pause them or slow them down, there are other intentions out there competing. And if you can stop the instinctive one long enough, a wiser one might actually get to the finish line in time, and then you can release that one. You know, the pause, the mindfulness, allows you to maybe pick and choose among the competing intentions. If you're mindful enough to see them. So another point I want to make is that um, we have the circuitry to know what our intentions are. Now, not necessarily verbally, and we may not have the inclination to know what they are. <laughs> you know, give me a good rationalization any time. Uh, but um, there is a quote I'd like to have someone read, if you don't mind. Uh, it's... Uh, gosh. on the second page and uh, it's Ajahn Suchito comma and the end of comma anyone have the mic and the willingness to read it thank you uh, intention carries a mind state with it bright or dark steady or erratic it can be gentle or vigorous and these states and the feelings that accompany them are food for the heart Hence, what to look for is not the feeling that arises from sense contact, but that which accompanies intention. So the first Dhamma accomplishment is that of turning the mind around from holding on to what it receives and attending to the roots of how it behaves. That shift allows you to place a simple and direct question into the depths of your mind, heart, and nervous system. Is the state or view or program that I'm running 
taking me into suffering and stress or out of it. Thank you. So Suchita was telling us uh, that intention has Vedana. There's a feeling, there's a mind state, a contextual state associated with it. Uh, and when we learn to notice that, it's, a, it, it's a, like a mindfulness bell. Yet if we're going to do something that's going to inc- be harmful to ourselves and others, you can feel that before you do it sometimes, if you get tuned into it. And it gives you an advantage in having your conscious faculties have a little more input into what behaviors come out. Um, yeah. Plus, it feels good, you know, when you're doing things that are benevolent. So there's a part of the brain uh, I'd like to just tell you a little bit about. So do, do, you, do you know the feeling that arises uh, in you right before you're about to make a mistake? Um, I mean, I do a lot of math in my work, and so, but I can sometimes tell I made a mistake. Oh, I made a mistake a few calculations ago. It's like it dawns on me that I think I made a mistake, and I go back and look for it. Or, um, you know, if you're using verbal skills, you're telling, talking about something, you get something wrong. Something, a bell goes off. That, that was not right. I said that wrong. Anyway, there's a, a part of your brain that keeps track of... Um, all of your intentions and compares them to your goals. Um, and uh, you can sort of feel it if, with one of the things on the color handout, page uh, two, lower right, um, in what's called the Stroop task or the color word task. So this is getting to be sort of commonly known, but maybe you haven't encountered it before. The task is to name the color of the font that these words are written in. And I would like you to please try to do that. Not out loud, but, but where you actually make the word, make, mentally sub-vocalize the word. Um, if you do brain imaging when people are doing this task, there's a certain part of the brain that just works really hard because it notices that you're trying to read and it's saying, no, the goal here, the instruction is to name the color, but you have a prepotent, habitual tendency to read words. Um, and uh, you, have to, um, you have to notice that you're making that mistake. And people make mistakes a lot when they do this task. It just slips in. Anyway, that part of the brain is called the anterior cingulate cortex. And... Yes, you can do strategies. Some people kind of blur their eyes so the word is less compelling. They just see the colors, but that's sort of cheating. We really want is for... This is a model of overcoming a habitual tendency, and it takes conscious control. And, and the anterior cingulate, which is gifted with this capacity to compare below consciousness, to compare your goals to the intentions that are arising. And it... Um, so this type of manipulative consciousness, access consciousness that allows you to kind of think and make decisions, uh, 
if, you, if you're using that, you can do the Stroop task pretty carefully. If you're really like always remembering the rule, and you can do this without error. But that's a limited capacity resource. It's easily distracted. You know, it doesn't like to do one thing for over and over again. So it starts to drift. And the part, one of the roles of the anterior cingulate is to decide when you need to call the, the top guy. You know, the, the executive part that's, that's really always involved in access consciousness, the highest level of governing behavior. Uh, and so the anterior singlet calls the top guy when you're about to make a mistake. Otherwise, you know, automatic pilot is fine. But you need to have something to tell you when automatic pilot is not fine. And so that's what this thing does. So it's a way that we can be aware. If we really have cultivated some values that are going against the stream and we want to overcome some of our instinctive tendencies for greed and aversion and delusion, we have circuits that will tell us that, you know, when, when that is really represented as a, as a goal. Um, you can hear that mindfulness bell go off, telling you, you know, you're about to do that old thing again. <laughs> That's one way that we can be aware of intentions and maybe affect the competition in a constructive way. Another way is, um, is something that you see in all animals, including jellyfish, I think the most primitive animals that have been studied carefully by neuroscientists. And that is, every action that we emit into the world uh, is uh, cc'd to other parts of the nervous system. A copy of the, the action model is cc'd to, it's shared with other parts of the organism. It's, a, it's crucial. I mean, if a jellyfish is hunting, I mean, they have uh, light-sensitive organs, and they swim, and they go get prey, at least the current, yeah, the jellyfish. Uh, and they start swimming, they have to know if the movement that they're seeing is because of their, of their swimming movements or because of the thing in front of them. You have to be able to, this is one way that distinguishing self from other is conventionally real and conventionally useful. It's, it's necessary for biology. Uh, in, in, a, in an organism like an animal with a nervous system that moves in complex ways, it has to know what it's doing so that it can differentiate that from what's changing in the environment. Otherwise, the source of the change is ambiguous. Has, has my visual field changed because things moved or because I moved? Right. You see the necessity for it. And it's a, it's, there are a lot of wires, fibers in our brain devoted to this mo- internal monitoring. Uh, I've put this little sketch of it on the black and white handout, which is somewhere on the bottom. So uh, on the left is the cerebral cortex and it creates competing response possibilities that go out to our response execution system and then one response turns into behavior in the world. And we, one way we know about our behavior, the most conscious way, is we see it. <laughs> we see what we did, we hear what we said. Um, that's one way we monitor our behavior. But there's this other way that's not as obvious and that's on the right. Every intention that's launched, even if it doesn't necessarily become the thing that's dominating our behavior, but if it's just biasing toward uh, 
you know, saying something nasty, you know, you can feel yourself drifting toward, you know, maybe I'll say something nasty here. Uh, even if it's not, not an overt behavior, it's a preparation, the rest of your brain knows about that. Um, e- like thinking, which isn't really behavior, but it's in language. You create um, um, sub-vocalizations of language. And the rest of your brain knows that you're thinking these things. And that information is shared in a way that's um, not conscious, like access consciousness. You can't reason about it abstractly. You can't tell someone about it. It's an embodied awareness. And we know that, that this is absolutely essential because there are some conditions where this isn't working right. This, this is called the efference copy system. Efference means outgoing message. And it's the outgoing messages from our brain to our behavior that there's always, there are no exceptions to this rule in the animal kingdom. Every one of those messages is copied and sent back into the system. So, and the system keeps track of the state of behavior. Yeah. Is the failure of this system what's going on when people hear voices and think they're coming that's, the, that's a leading theory for why people with psychotic disorders um, experience their thoughts as someone outside speaking them because their their brain uh, the thoughts are there in the brain and they don't know that they that they're self-generated like we we know that our movements are self-generated like I'll tell you the evidence for that in schizophrenia so um, one of the ways this was originally studied was uh, to have people try to tickle themselves now most people cannot tickle themselves Uh, you can do this but you don't feel any surprise um, because your body knows in an embodied level exactly what your fingers are about to do. But I could tickle you and you would be surprised. Uh, And that would happen. Now, people who are prone to hallucinations like this can tickle themselves. Uh, And this has been studied systematically where they rate the amusement they feel when they do a self-stimulating thing. A more, a more scholarly way it's been studied is um, looking at the, aud- the hearing system's response to your own voice. The reason that when we hear our voice on an audio recording, it's, that doesn't sound like me, is because when, when we talk, our efference copy system tells our, our hearing system, you can kind of ignore this because I've already told you what he's about to say. <laughs> and so it really turns down the gain. It, it shuts, it filters it out thoroughly. When you hear the recording, you go, that's what I sound like? Um, but people who are prone to psychotic symptoms like hallucinations and delusions of control where, where they think, I didn't put my hand there, somebody's making me do it. When they hear their own voice, the auditory system is very active. You know, the... the Amplitude of the electrical potentials in response to their own voice is full. It's as full as hearing someone else's voice. But for, the, for people who don't have that illness, it's much reduced. It's way, filtered way down because we anticipate it. The size of this system is immense. I mean, this is a lot of what's there in the wiring is keeping track of what we're doing. So I would like you to realize that we are all marinating in our intentions. And it's not a kind of access consciousness where we know we can name them, 
but they're affecting us. We know we can't lie to ourselves about it. We can lie to ourselves in access consciousness and say, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings or whatever. We can't lie to ourselves in this embodied level. We just know what, what our intentions are. At an embodied level, yeah, we can't necessarily say it. But I think it's an aid to practice as your um, practice uh, facilitates awareness of these body states, and Vedana in particular. There is a Vedana to harmful intentions, and there's a Vedana to benevolent intentions. And if you can tune into that it, in this non-language way, it's a guide to, you know, yeah, go ahead and do that, or maybe put the brakes on. And uh, I like to think that, I think it's true, that the more meditation you do, the more time sort of slows down. And um, so if you've done a lot of meditation recently, it buys you some extra time that you can see the feeling tone that's in your body yeah. before you say it. And then you can decide not to. But if you haven't been meditating, it all happens too fast, and he blurted out. Does that sound right? Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, let's, let's go to questions now. That's all the material I have. I had a question, and I think it's about what you're calling access consciousness. Um, we're really conscious of it. And I, I read a model of that that I liked, which is there's lots of parts of your brain, and they're doing different things. They have, you know, We know that. It's all mapped out. Um, and they're doing those things largely independently. But one thing becomes so important that they have to talk to each other a lot. Right. And, that, and that they can measure that communication going back and forth and it creates a feeling in our head, and we didn't know what that was, so we called it consciousness. Yeah. And it was thought kind of mysterious. You know, it was even philosophers called it the hard problem. What is this? This self-awareness. But but this theory is that it, it's just the noise of all these parts of our brain talking to each other for this one thing that's become important. And the Libet experiment seems totally consistent with that to me. Yeah. And maybe this thing of choosing how meditation you can uh, train yourself to pick the most important task. You, you, can, you can help decide which one wins the competition. Yeah. Do Does that make any sense? Absolutely, yeah. yes. Consciousness is a great ally. <laughs> yeah, I just have uh, one quick question. Uh, where is the mindfulness center? Uh, it's, it's on Birch. Uh, <laughs> you mean in the brain? It, you know, it's a distributed process. It's not a located process in the brain. Most of the really high, func- the high-level things in the brain are are a function of the of the whole system. You know. I just asked because uh, the internal monitoring system, which is a thalamus, oh, yeah, and and then uh, you you talked about uh, the. Uh, Pre-motor. Yes, yeah, and, pre-motor, right in front and of those the, are two very, very interesting places. Yeah. Think about that. Well, the internal monitoring system is distributed. 
Um, it, it, but it relies on the thalamus. It's, it's a cortical thalamus cor cortical loop. So uh, if one part of the cortex is hatching an intention to do something and a different part is hatching a different intention, they share that information with other, par the other parts of the brain that need to know about it. So it's really distributed, but it, the, the cabling is known, but it's, it's something that happens in different places depending upon the intentions. The premotor is a specific region, just a little bit in front of the motor homunculus, um, and uh, that is a that's more of a concrete function. It's a, it's it's localized to one patch, left and right. Yeah. Oh. Uh, a few decades ago. Um I'm trying to remember his name, Antonio, something that... Damasio. Damasio, uh, the feeling of what happens. And he made a big deal about the body-mind feedback. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I was wondering, you didn't mention much of that here. No, yeah, I, I, it's hard to talk about consciousness. Um, but yes, I think embodied awareness is, is a critical part, especially of feeling, of Vedana. Um, and it's part of consciousness as well, yeah. Yeah, no, he, he has a very reasonable theory about how that all works. Uh, it, it's kind of detailed, though. <laughs> it's a long day. Can I just um, say thank you for the 30 to 40 milliseconds in between the preparation of the intention and the coming out with it? <laughs> giving a lot of freedom and I didn't realize what was going on behind the scenes and I'm very happy to know now. Yeah. Thank you. It's good news, isn't it? Yeah. Do you have a question? Yeah. So this box down here, um, internal monitoring system, yeah. is, does that roughly correspond to... Uh, introspective awareness um, in a meditation context of like being able to focus on what you're not focus on it but having a part of your brain that's aware of what you're what you're doing whether you're thinking whether you're breathing well I think so yeah I mean it's different from body awareness it's in interoceptive where you feel your guts kind of moving and feel warmth in your you know part of your body or something that's 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 different that sort of sense gate uh, awareness of the body this is more this internal examining of the just of the milieu you know of your of your experience I mean, it's embodied in a sense but not in the sense of going to particular regions right and and you said that um Schizophrenics or psychotics often don't have a functioning. It's it's impaired. Yeah, it's impaired. Yeah. So, have they done any studies to see whether people like that can meditate uh, in, oh. in a similar way? Uh, I'd be surprised if there hasn't been someone who's looked at that. But I don't. I can't. Oh, okay. I can't think of it. You know, maybe not. I mean, certainly depression, anxiety. They've applied meditation a lot, but why wouldn't mindfulness be helpful in psychotic illness? I mean, it would be. I just don't know the literature. It seems like it would be helpful anyway, because that's only one thing, you know, and I mean, a lot of dealing with, treating people with psychotic illness is helping them 
to be able to objectify their limitations and, wor and develop workarounds, you know, for them. And so that would be, you know, some, that's the way you'd approach that deficiency is, that, you know, this just isn't working for you, so that's why this happens, and uh, help, help give them a, a framework for thinking about it that isn't, you know, uh, laden with self-hate. Right, but in, in some ways it's doubly hard because the, the, maybe the part that would allow them to have that kind of self-awareness is impaired. Yeah, yeah, true. Well, yeah, there's a lot of parts of the brain that aren't quite wired normally. Okay, another question? Uh, Rick, I, I think you'd mentioned in relation to the colors and text, was that the anterior cingulate? Yes. Do, do I remember that's, I mean, some people have done some studies on long-time meditators and discovered changes in portions of the brain. Was the anterior cingulate one of those regions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really useful region. Um, it's a region that... <coughs> um, has uh, stress hormone receptors, has a lot of stress hormone receptors, you know, cortisol, the stress hormone, has an effect on the body and on the brain, and some brain cells are more sensitive to circulating levels of stress hormone than others. So one thing about the anterior cingulate, I mean, it's weird. Uh, people have done studies... Uh, across all psychiatric disorders, psychotic, depression, anxiety, drug abuse. Like, you know, we have these categories that I think are meaningful, uh, but s people have asked the question, maybe they all have something in common, you know? And, and there are some things that they have in common, and one of them is the anterior cingulate shrinks in people who are suffering uh, psychologically. Uh, and I think that's what they have in common. All those disorders cause suffering. They make your life worse. Um, and and uh, I think one reason, my model of thinking about why meditation would be associated with enlargement, there's a, there's a couple of regions that shrink across all kinds of stressful psychiatric diagnoses, and they're also, they're, the insula and the anterior cingulate, they all get bigger when people who meditate regularly, and I'm thinking it's that they're not as stressed. <laughs> you know, they're just, uh, that's a, those are like little canaries in the mind, you know, in the mind. Uh, and it's a very important region, the anterior cingulate. There are some parts of the anterior cingulate that are crucial for overriding fear conditioning. You know, that's where, that's the part of the cortex that learns to contain the instinctive react, emotional reaction. And, you know, people with emotional disorders like major depression or panic disorder, those are the parts that are like not working very well parts that no, it would allow a normal person to learn their way out of that black hole. But if that part is shrunken because of stress, it's a kind of a perfect storm. They get stuck. Um, any other questions? It's probably a good time for a break. Let's take a break. Oh boy. Ten minutes? Yeah, ten minutes.